All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about From Here to Eternity. I kind of wanted to pull it back a little bit from our normal cold opens and kind of just focus more on this shift in what we've been seeing in films and filmmaking starting with from here to eternity because it does feel like there's a shift from the old hollywood from the 30s and the 40s and the early 50s to a little more modern approach to the characters the way it's shot and the way it's written and stylized so kind of just wanted to talk about the film from a more i i guess modern approach or modern lens is the best way to call it so for me, I think the biggest thing for me is just the way the characters are developed and the way the characters are presented in this film. There's a lot of depth and there's a lot of diving into their characterizations and their psyches. That seems to be a, you know, one of the, uh, you know, the talents of, of Fred Zinneman as a director and, and how he's able to get his actors to, you know, really, I don't know, I guess you can call it method acting, but it's really more of a modern approach to acting that we see today where... You understand the psyche, you understand the emotions and the thought process of the character before you even portray them on, on screen. You're studying them and, and, and developing them in your own head for how you would do it. So for me, like that was the biggest modern twist and turn that this film presents. Uh, John, what, what would you uh, call your biggest twist and modern uh, take from this film? I would probably say that definitely use of locations. Obviously, we have a lot of more natural dialogue and more natural kind of conversations than what we've seen in, in before. It's less uh, theatrical than what we've seen, especially like when you compare this to like all about Eve or some of the other really heavy dialogue films that we've watched. But a lot of it comes down to, like you said, location and, and really the world building is really what I probably appreciated the most out of this film is just the way Zinneman builds the world of this army base. And you have a lot of characters and, they flesh out those characters pretty well, but you also get a good sense of what it's like to live on the base and what it's like to be one of these men. And there's great moments where there's like a talking or quick line from a chef or some other random military men in the base, and they feel like a real person. You know, it's not just like some throwaway line for a side character to say. They feel like they're a part of this overall base, and you really get a sense of this overall world that he's building. And I think that comes from shooting on locations, some of that natural dialogue. And a mix of all of that really helps kind of expand and open up the world. And it makes it feel bigger than just like a picture. Like you're just looking in. It feels larger than that, right? Like you can see beyond just the picture frame of, of what we would normally call like a movie picture. It definitely feels expanded way more than what we're used to. Absolutely. And I feel ultimately all of that makes it easier to digest. And it makes it feel like that you that these people did exist and it was real. Especially when you look at the history in this film and that it took place during Pearl Harbor in the beginning of World War Two, you can you have this sense of like, oh, like they existed like this, like they have that sense of realism, which is fascinating. And, and we haven't really had that yet in a lot of the films because they felt more like plays or they felt like way bigger dramas and over dramatizations of this of the stories they were telling. Whereas this feels natural. You know, you, the love feel the love stories actually feel believable and like actual love stories rather than. Well, that's just goofy, and they were just there, and that's how they ended up together, just, like, seeing each other from across the room. But this this time, it feels like, no, I'm actually developing this love and this bond with you. And, and it goes beyond just that. It goes into friendships and other forms of relationships in this film. 
Uh, so is there any other modern takes or twists that this film presents compared to what we saw in the previous 25 uh, Best Picture winners that we've talked about? So we've definitely, I'm trying to think of what film it was, but we've definitely seen cheating or at least like hints of cheating in films. And it's been kind of pretty held back though, where they don't really reveal too much and they don't really go too deep into like how much a person is cheating or what they're doing. But for this film, it feels like they kind of cross a line that we haven't really crossed yet where we're directly talking about how we're cheating, how my husband's like he's cheating as well. So I'm also cheating. I've been with a lot of men. It feels like it's opening a lot of like sexual talk that we just kind of haven't really explored too much. Not that it is very much about the film or that's kind of a center point of the film, but it feels like characters are more free and, and open to talk about these things and it makes everyone feel more human in a way. So yeah, I definitely think that helps to overall build the world and show a larger picture uh, overall. And yeah, I think that's why this film stands out and it feels different than others, but it's certainly not my favorite, but it definitely stands out in how it's kind of feels like a shift, like you're saying. Yeah, and we're going to definitely dive deep into all the sexuality and uh, promiscuous acts that goes on in this film. So let's just dive right into it and answer that age old question is from here to eternity worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1953. From Here to Eternity At a U.S. Army base in 1941 in Hawaii, a private is cruelly punished for not boxing on his unit's team, while his commanding officer's wife and top aide begin a tentative affair. In 1941, bugler and career soldier, Private Robert E. Lee Pruitt transfers from Fort Shafter to a rifle company at Schofield Barracks on the island of Oahu. Because Pruitt was also a boxer, Captain Dana Dynamite Holmes wants him on his regimental team. Pruitt explains that he stopped fighting after blinding a friend and refuses. Consequently, Holmes makes Pruitt's life miserable and ultimately orders First Sergeant Milton Warden to prepare court-martial. Warden suggests doubling Pruitt's company punishments as an alternative. Pruitt is hazed by the other NCOs and is supported only by his close friend, Private Angelo Maggio. Pruitt and Maggio join a social club where Pruitt becomes attracted to Lorene. At the club, Maggio gets into an argument with a stockade sergeant, Fatso Judson. Later, at a local bar, Judson provokes Maggio and the two nearly come to blows before Warden intervenes. Despite being warned, Warden risk prison when he starts seeing Holmes's wife Karen. Her marriage to Holmes is fraught with infidelity, exasperated after the stillbirth of a child and Karen's subsequent infertility. Karen encourages Warden to become an officer, which enables her to divorce Holmes and marry him. Maggio sentenced to the socket after walking off guard duty and getting drunk, subjecting him to Judson's unqualified and unauthorized wrath. Pruitt discovers Lorene's name is really Alma, and her goal is to make enough money at the club to go back to the mainland. Pruitt tells her his career is in the military, and the two wonder whether they have a future together. A sergeant named Galovich, a member of Holmes's boxing team, picks a fight with Pruitt. The fight is reported to Holmes, who observes without intervening. Holmes is about to punish Pruitt again, but when he is told that Galovich started the fight, Holmes lets him off the hook. The regimental commander observes Holmes's conduct, and after an investigation, orders his resignation in lieu of a court-martial. Holmes's replacement, Captain Ross, reprimands the other NCOs, demotes Galovich to private, 
and affirms that there will be no more promotions through boxing. Maggio escapes from the stockade after a brutal beating from Judson and dies in Pruitt's arms. Seeking revenge, Pruitt finds Judson in a back alley and the two fight with knives. Pruitt kills Judson, but not before being badly wounded himself. Pruitt goes AWOL and stays with Loreen while Warden covers for his absence. Karen tells Warden that Holmes' resignation is forcing him back to the mainland, but Warden reveals he has no interest in becoming an officer, effectively ending their relationship. Early Sunday morning, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Warden keeps his head in the chaos. That night, Pruitt attempts to rejoin his company, despite Lorene's plea for him to stay with her. But MPs shoot him dead when he refuses to halt. Warden identifies him as a good soldier, but a hardhead. Days later, Karen and Lorene coincidentally stand next to each other on a ship going to the mainland. Karen tosses her lays into the sea, wondering if she will ever return to Hawaii. Lorraine tells Karen she is not returning and that her fiancé, whom she identifies as Pruitt, died heroically during the Pearl Harbor attack and was awarded a silver star, none of which was true. Karen recognizes the name, but says nothing. From Here to Eternity was directed by Fred Zinneman. Written by Daniel Taradash, based upon the novel by James Jones. Produced by Buddy Adler. Music by George Dunning. Cinematography by Burnett Guffey. Film editing by William A. Lyon. Art direction by Carrie O'Dell. Costume design by Jean Louise. From Here to Eternity stars Burt Lancaster as Sergeant Milton Warden. Montgomery Clift as Robert E. Lee Pruitt. Deborah Kerr as Karen Holmes. Donna Reed as Alma, a.k.a. Lorene. Frank Sinatra as Angelo Maggio. Philip Ober as Captain Dana Holmes. Mickey Shaughnessy as Sergeant Leva. And Ernest Borgnine as Sergeant Fatso Judson. So, from here to eternity, the 1953 Best Picture winner. Uh, it is... A classic film, I think among our parents' generations. I asked my dad recently about it, and he raved about it. It definitely seems like this was a you know good and true, beloved American film. And I actually want to throw this out there first just to have a little fun before we start it. And the immediate thought that went to my head upon rewatching it for this episode and preparing for it was someone like Captain Steve Rogers would have absolutely eaten this <laughs> shit up while he was about to fight in World War II. Yeah, that's really funny. First of all, I saw that in your notes and it made me laugh out loud. And second of all, it's true because part of Steve Rogers' arc, at least if we're talking like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is him being a very passionate and very military man who kind of gets to the point where he realizes the manipulation and abuse that the military kind of puts on you. So in a weird way, that kind of does summarize what this movie is, where it's like honorable men who are joining the military to do the right thing. There's a war going on, so it's like very likely that they're going to go to war. America hasn't committed to that point, but they're at Pearl Harbor training. But then there's also like the very apparent abuse that the military is putting these men through, that it's like torturing them in a way. And I think that is very much in line with what C. Rogers' arc is, so that makes total sense to me, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like Burt Lancaster, like if the, if Captain America was made back then or if Burt Lancaster existed today, he would have made a perfect Captain America for the for the from one of the Marvel movies. It's interesting. I don't know if I would say perfect for me. He's a little too like soft. I think just because he's so handsome. Where Chris Evans is really handsome, but he also I think has like that rugged edge. Like I wouldn't really buy. We're going into the the deep end here, but I, I wouldn't buy him like throwing punches and stuff like that. And part of that is his character here. I don't really buy him as a boxer, and that's just kind of part of the casting. Even though it is a really great performance, and he's 
really great, and he, he is a standout here among the cast. He was all very great in this film. So, but that that is an interesting way of bringing us into this world of of just like misunderstanding their surroundings, like trying to dedicate your life to something that clearly is not dedicated to you at all. And this is a film that I really wouldn't expect to be made until like the seventies, where we think of um, what's the classic Kubrick war film? Oh, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket, which was definitely inspired by this movie. It has to be. I mean, there's a lot of like close like references and even some shots that are pretty similar in this film. It's a full metal jacket. So to me, this film is kind of like a precursor to those those types of films like Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, movies that are about war, but also show like the dark, dark side of of war and the dark side of training men to have this kind of mindset. And I don't think it's perfect the way this movie executes it all. But yeah, tell me tell me what you got from this movie after watching it. And and what was your kind of biggest takeaway? Yeah, for me and to focus it again back on the war is that this is a movie about war, but it isn't about war. It's about soldiers, but it's not necessarily about soldiers. It's about brotherhood, but it's also not about brotherhood. It, it try it, it does, it, it, it doesn't try. It does present all of that within that context of being in in a regiment. Everyone's supposed to be there for each other, but there's really a lot of factions. There's a lot of people going head to head. Most of them don't like each other. Most of them want nothing to do with each other. And it always begs that question throughout. Uh, a lot of people bring up is like, so why are you there? Why are you so committed? You know, uh, Pruitt's uh, played by Montgomery Clift. You know, he is constantly questioned, like, why do you take this abuse? Why do you continue to be in the army, the military? But he just feels this duty, and it's ultimately his downfall in the end. And it's kind of it's the downfall of Karen's and Warden's relationship, Deborah Kerr and Burt Lancaster, because she he doesn't want to get divorced, he, or he doesn't want to become an officer he doesn't believe he can do it um and so he kind of just at the end backs out of their plan where she was going to get divorced they're going to get married because he still feels that sense of duty to the army and then that sense of duty is kind of what helps him become that hero in the end during the pearl harbor attack where he leads the regiment he takes over he he you see like all the stuff that he stood up for in the middle of the movie you see all that come to action which is great because it comes full circle but it, you still are like, but why do you want to do this? Like, why mm-hmm. why are you why are you there? And I think maybe that was a question a lot of soldiers for World War II were thinking is like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? Uh, because that war took a lot out of them, and also it's just similar to World War One. And I'm sure there's the idea of some people are probably like just the way it is now, even with everything going on in Ukraine, people are like, we're definitely going to war. No, we definitely probably will stay out of it. Like, we just want to worry about our country. We'll stay out of it and we won't go to war. You know, I'll just join because it's a job that I can get right out of school. So I can imagine both sides of people being in this situation of some people being like, this is my career. This is my only option. Just like I think a lot of people still do that today with the military is just join to just kind of start their life, to get money, to like kind of get a push start. And it has helped a lot of people, but it also this film shows the kind of dark angle of it and the way they kind of manipulate people for their own gain and you mentioned Warden and, and their relationship and him not wanting to be a captain. And part of it is that he likes his position currently now, but also I think it's he sees the way the captain operate, operates and it's very much just for personal gain. It has nothing to do with like the community of men, like the, the, the honoring the nation and honoring like what it means to be in the military. It's very much just kind of like it's a job for him and he just wants to control people. And that's very much kind of how the captain comes off in this film. And I think the Warden is affected a lot by the captain obviously he's dating his wife and they're kind of he knows a lot more about the captain than the captain probably would ever reveal to him and 
there's constant kind of back and forth that he has that kind of shows that he just doesn't really approve of the way the captain kind of operates and, and controls the unit overall. So I, I think you can see this in each one of our characters, and it's definitely there in the least of it with Warden because he's he's crucial to the film because of the love story and that plot line, but he's not... I don't know if you could even define a main character. I guess you'd have to say it's Pruitt, right? Would you say yeah. that Pruitt is the main character? Yeah, it definitely has to be Pruitt. And, and to kind of just bounce off what you're saying, like a lot of this has to... Uh, be, it has to do with like what it means to be a man when, and that's the service level of it. But a lot of it is, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be compassionate for other people in your life? What does it mean to accept other people in your life, whether that's a good thing that they've done or bad things that they've done? And I think that the biggest, uh, like, and I actually think it's the two female characters that you see that the most in because for them it's like, how do I become a person? Like for. Um, for Donna Reed's character playing Lorraine, you know, she plays, and they don't say in the movie, she plays a prostitute, but she has this drive to become her own person, to to be proper, as she would say, uh, to be, and I guess it's a way of being successful. So it's like poorly written there for her, but those themes of like, how do I become a better human? How do I become a better person? How do I create something for myself? And then we go on the, the other female performance of Deborah Kerr, she's dealing with the shit that her husband, you know, brought her through so it's like how do i come out of that how do i become a better person despite you know what i have to deal with with this husband with this person who's you know adulterous who 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 doesn't truly care about me and she finds that you know she does sleep with other men but at the same time maybe that's her way of becoming that person because women were shut away that women were told you can't do any of this so while the men in this movie are dealing with that like how do i be a man how do i become a good american the women in this tackle, how do I be a human? How do I be a better person? Yeah, and that's kind of trying to bounce off the men in their relationship. I mean, that's kind of a weaker element for me is is the women's aspect of this film because I just don't think they get enough. Probably because there just isn't enough time to kind of give all these characters enough to do because we have Robert E. Lee, which is just, <laughs> we got to talk about that name. It's wild that they chose to make that. I'm, I'm assuming that comes originally from the book and that was his name kind of carried over really weird choice i'm not really sure why that is or if it really kind of relates to his character but it's definitely spoken about multiple maybe times. it's like the hard-headedness of, of robert, robert lee, e. lee. <laughs> right, fighting for the confession i mean maybe that is kind of the 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 point of it is that he's supposed to be this rebellious person and it which I is a it, it's a it's a very poor way of presenting it he's so not rebellious though he's well, just like trying to do the right thing which is like it's rebellious like for our, that company though you know sure yeah it is he's as rebelling as you could in the most like minor way you know like, yeah he's doing it to be like respected so it doesn't really feel like he's revolting in the same way that like frank sinatra does when he just leaves you know like when he just goes off duty entirely and just leaves yeah he's not doing anything as drastic as that he's just like you can't spit in my face which is like an understandable thing like you shouldn't trip me but understandable that, thing you know but then he does kill at the end yes i'm sure i mean that is like as bad as you could possibly get but it's because of another death and it's because of the yeah, whole yeah, torture that he's been through right acts and revenge yeah. yeah which may not be a moral again going back to like being a per being a good person finding your place in this life that's kind of you know despite him like wanting to be good he still he he does try to take the high road but sometimes he lets those emotions get the better of him and he doesn't take the necessary roads like he's a dick to uh, Lorraine when he first meets when he first meets her and he's not very understanding he's very like 
you know, I'm a man and I want you and, and I'm going to have you type of thing rather than just accepting that a woman can just be a woman on her own. Yeah, very you much know. so, which they kind of tell you it's a brothel and these are prostitutes, but it's also like the most delicately put yeah. way. Like they, which they don't really even say whether they have sex or not, but like Pruitt has sex with Lorraine later that night. And they like, the only hint that they did anything is they cut back to that scene and she's like putting one earring back on. Like she was just undressed maybe or like and maybe the earring fell out i don't know it's like that really sums up how we're like somewhat progressing here and like showing these things but also like no 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 like we still need to like put a blindfold over some of these things well let's jump into the the sex and the promiscuous acts that we kind of hinted at in the beginning of this uh because that it it feels like that's like the biggest thing that comes out of this is how you know on the fringe of like topics and discussions that best picture winners that we've seen have gone to like this one really goes to that edge really pushes that boundary you know and i guess like we we've seen sexuality before you know we i think of like it happened one night being probably the most sexual up to this point sure yeah definitely i mean all about eve we like hint at like sexual things but it's not nearly like talked about like it happened one night which directly talks about like the difference between sexes and like what does it mean to be romantic and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So this one definitely does that. So I think uh, let's actually, let's start talking about Pruitt and Lorraine's relationship uh, because that is the most like obvious in your face, like no, no taboo thing that, that they are able to fit into this, which is talking about prostitution. Sure. And it's, I don't have like a moral code for that. So it's hard to say like, this is how I feel about prostitution, but <laughs> I think it's actually fascinating and, and it's interesting and, and i and i like that it's included in talking about it because it is such a taboo subject because <laughs> you kind of have to creatively not talk about it while talking about it within the, the constraints of 1953 so i feel like that's the most like interesting way that it's tackled creatively because of how they can show it of what they can do what they can talk about because they can it's almost like replacing everything with like birds and bees talk. With yeah. How they present it. Yeah. I mean, to a degree, like we definitely get into some pretty deep conversations, especially with like the warden um, and all of that relationship as well. But with the rain and Pruitt, it's, it's so light in conversation where it's like to the point where she's just, it's unnecessary that she's even a prostitute because it doesn't really come back into play really. Like their first interaction is all about it because she's there. She's in the brothel. He's hitting on her. He's like choosing her as like his girl for the night. She's called the princess. Exactly. Yeah. He keeps calling her a princess. And and then another guy kind of comes and is hitting on her and he gets angry. Like you said, and he's acting like a child. And that is like their only hint that like, okay, she's a prostitute. Like she can go, go with any man and she has to be nice to any man, right? And then, like, from that point on, once, like, they, like, Pruitt and Lorraine have that connection, it's like, okay, we're moving on. She's basically not a prostitute anymore. She's just his girlfriend. She's just there for him. And I just don't think they really, like, mention her work. Like, maybe I'm, I missed something. I watched it again today, but I just didn't really think, like, they hit on her her life enough after that point. Yeah, they only really hit on it when she's talk when she brings Pruitt to her house and she and she also reveals that her real name is Alma. So, but I think we're sure, just yeah. keep calling her Lorraine because that's the first. Yeah, name that's the how we introduced that, her, yeah. that we see. But she has this whole speech, and uh, I'll read right now because I thought like that was one of the actually few fascinating speeches given. So she goes, "I won't marry you because I don't want to be the wife of a soldier because nobody's going to stop me from my plan. Nobody, nothing because I want to be proper. Yes, proper." 
in another year, I'll have enough money saved. Then I'm going to go back to my hometown in Oregon and I'm going to build a house for my mother and myself and join the country club and take up golf. And I'll meet the proper man with the proper position to make a proper wife who can run a proper home and raise proper children. And I'll be happy because when you're proper, you're safe. And it's that last line, when you're proper, you're safe, is what really got me, I think, emotionally and, and piqued my interest the most from this speech because, again, it plays the dichotomy of I want to be proper, I want to be safe, but then I'm also a prostitute, and that's not a proper, it's not a safe thing well, within the context I, of that time. I guess that's what she's trying to say. Like, she doesn't want to be a prostitute, and she's not safe being a prostitute because men can sometimes get, like, violent towards women, especially in, like, that scenario is what I'm trying to say. But I, to me, almost, that feels like she's almost going against and saying negative things about sex work. Like, that's all sex work is. And maybe it was drastically different. I mean, this is still 70 years ago, so... And maybe like a drastically different, and I do have a pretty strong opinion. I think like all sex work should be legal and it shouldn't be something that's condemned or even looked at poorly. I think it should always, and has always been like a tradition in this country and in the entire world really. So that is a little weird because it kind of does kind of shame and pity those who are in that kind of field where I'm sure there's people that like live their whole life just only working like the sex industry or sex work and they're fine and they're sure they've like run into like dangerous things but it also kind of hits against that in a weird way and and I guess that may be the point of her character too is just not being defined as a prostitute like that's not only who she is she's like doing this to get up an advantage in life to like move forward and that's a pretty cool like aspect and like relationship to have with these characters to kind of pick someone who's so independent but also you would never expect her to be independent because she's in a job where she's like told what to do in every step of the way so it's an interesting twist to her character I just like wonder exactly what that is trying to be if it's just like her character or if that's like an overall message that like the the writing's supposed to kind of demonstrate that sex work is kind of bad and like it shouldn't be a, a full-time thing or it should just be like a part-time thing that you should like kind of look down upon it. I don't know. It, it, it yeah. doesn't go enough into it to like say whether they pick a side or not. Yeah. I think that, I think you're right. I think you can look at it that way about it's a negative comment on it, but I also think that it's more of a negative comment on being in the army and being a soldier. Cause she's, sure. she's talking about being that she can't be a wife to prove it because it's not proper to be a wife to a soldier that there's, something like some moral thing within her that's saying the army and, and fighting is not proper, that there's something wrong about it, which I think is again, like what this movie just try to tackle with. It's like, well, this is a war movie, but it's also saying what's bad about war. What's bad about the army while also praising it at the same time. So it, it's a, and I think that's like what ultimately makes it hard for us as viewers and, and trying to, critique it and dive into it is because it, it does so many different things. It says one thing, but yet does another, you know, type of thing with it. So it's, it's really confusing, but I, I think, I think that this is a really interesting characterization for, uh, for Donna Reed's character. Then we should go over to the other couple, which is very as well, extreme for what we've seen at the time, which is a cheating, you know, a huge, just, cheating relationship you know I'm, I'm blanking on the term i'm trying to think of what what the term is for when you're adulterous adultery yes thank you and it's just so shown right on the floor you know it's right in front of you and it's not hiding it it's not like oh like maybe i'm married like it's not like somewhat hinting at it no it's like flat out saying i'm married to him not only am i marrying to this person you work with him he is like your superior officer and 
the way they introduce those two characters is interesting because she kind of walks in to the base and drives in a really fancy car dressed really nice and they're all kind of like looking at her and gawking at her and we kind of slowly put together that they have like a fond attractiveness to each other but from their initial point of view like what did you think of them introducing themselves and how they kind of come together as a couple yeah i think that it's it's hard because i'm trying to think about the first time i watched it and i was a little it was a little confusing because you're like well, you know you're, you're putting a lot of emphasis on these two but then when you watch it a second and a third time it's so in your face and right there that it's, <laughs> it's like kind of funny yeah that they present it like that no but, it is yeah yeah but it's it's cool how it's then compared to Pruitt and Lorraine's relationship because they're both secret relationships. One's with the prostitute, one's you know coming in from a from a cheating perspective, and sure. you know. So it's I think like that's interesting of how that's presented because it's it's two things to compare and two different types of love. Because I think that with with a uh, Warden and Karen's characters that it's something they're trying to fill. They're trying to fill in the missing pieces where I think that with Lorraine and and Pruitt's characters is that they are able that they actually blend well together they actually complete each other and the, and they can complement each other whereas the other two are like we need to f- we need to find something that fulfills an empty part of our lives and maybe we'll just fuck each other and that's it and, and that'll be a good time to, to work it out yeah it's interesting I mean the way they come together with him kind of going to the captain's house it's it seems a little unclear like whether they have like a kind of history already at this point or whether we're introducing him to this film and that's like the first time that they've kind of like been together or introduced to each other and I'm assuming that's what it was like this is their first interaction and then later on he goes to the captain's house where she is and they show that they have chemistry right away I mean the two actors have chemistry they work pretty well together I just don't really like buy their relationship honestly like overall it's just it felt pretty forced to me and it felt like so rushed. And then part of the issue with their plot line is that the warden sergeant just kind of gets like booted out of this film for a while. Like he's gone for like 30 minutes in the middle of this movie. And and once they kind of like establish their relationship together, they kind of like move forward and they're like, okay, now we got to focus back on cliff. We got to do their relationship with Maggio and uh, you know, build up their relationships as well. And, I think part of that is why I just feel like a little soft on their relationship. Obviously, we get to like the amazing, iconic beach scene, which we have to talk about, which has some cool moments, but I just didn't really buy their relationship at all, really. Yeah, so I think that what makes it a little stifled at first is because Karen is a little stuck up. Or at least she comes across as stuck sure. up, yeah. but maybe she's also protecting herself and like, who the fuck is this guy? Because they do... Uh, kind of hint at that this isn't the first time she's you know, slept <laughs> yeah. with a soldier in her husband's company so definitely not. so maybe we're walking on like thin ice with that but yeah. but yeah but then it transitions to and, and it's actually a perfect time because this is probably the clunkiest and goofiest part from a from a technical a- aspect of the movie uh the beach the, the well it's the beach and it's also the cutting between lorraine and uh, pruitt's first interaction so this is like 25 you know 30 minutes into the film where um where Pruitt and Lorraine meet first meet at the gentleman's club and then it's when Karen and Warden first run off together and have their first secret fling and it's on the beach so let's start with the fling because that is the most (laughs) iconic scene and and I think that everyone will remember they won't know where they've seen it before but they've definitely seen a couple on the beach making out while the waves are rushing over them and crashing over them and it's iconic and it's like you know that's hollywood love that's like passionate 
and and artistic and and it really shows like how like beautiful love can be and how and, and it's and it's great it's very iconic but then when you watch the context of the movie it's like so jarring of how it's presented the cut the editing and the cutting of, of it is because it goes back and forth between the gentleman's club and then the beach so you have a really loud and noisy fun happy time to passion and love and and fierce and 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 fire you know within them and it, it's like you these should have been two totally different scenes and inter, interactions and events yeah but they're like all cut together yeah which i don't really understand why maybe there's some reason there where it's like the two men meeting the women and connecting for the first time they still want to go over two hours in the runtime yeah <laughs> maybe that's what it is yeah yeah i mean it is cool, and that shot is is a really nice introduction to like kind of their love, and it shows that they are literally so blinded by this, they don't care about anything else. That they'll literally let the waves like wash over them. They literally don't even care about being like fucking completely wet or sandy or anything. But it's also just a clunky scene because I just don't buy any of this. Like these characters have had five minutes of screen time now already, and it's just like we're just going to assume that they're like so madly in love and. This has obviously been a trend that we've had in a lot of Hollywood movies, just how fast characters fall in love. But for this, it was even more drastic because it's like you guys aren't even like you guys are just like che- like you're just cheating on your husband with this random dude. And you're like this madly in love with this random dude. And maybe that's who her character is. And that's kind of showing more about it. But on top of that, I just found a lot of the lines in the scene to be so cringy and. Maybe it's because we have the context of just, like, seeing some of these lines kind of, like, manipulated and translated over, you know, decade after decade in in love stories and rom-coms. But, like, having a line where it's, like, nobody has ever kissed me like this is, like, ugh, barf. Like, it's just... (laughs) It's just such corny fucking lines that come straight out of, like, a 90s romantic book that, like, your mom would read. Like, it's just... It is so cringy, and at times it does feel very much like that, like a like a secret adultery book that like women or like your mom would love to read or I don't want to just single it out to women because I'm sure there's plenty of men that love those like really funny corny romantic books but it just it really took me out of the rest of the movie and and for a movie that is not that lovey-dovey it just kind of like hits me over the head over and over and there's some of the scenes where they have or that scene in particular with some of the dialogue that they have is just so heavy-handed that it just really takes me out of it entirely. Yeah, and and I think from another technical aspect, you know, so the editing and the writing of it is isn't as strong, and then the design of it is also jarring because I don't know about you, but it feels like that they try to make this scene like it was at night, but it's really hard to understand that. Is and that what that's supposed to be? I, mean, I I think so because they try to do that multiple times where like these scenes are at night, but at the beach, but it seems like that they couldn't pull that off. So what they did is they just brought down like the exposure of the ISO, like really, really down. Yeah. To just make it look really dark. Yeah. But it, it seems like it's supposed to be during daytime. So it's like, if this is daytime, how are you two openly making out on the beach like that? But then I guess it's more acceptable if it's nighttime, but then technically visually, when you look at it, it's like that doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It feels like a mistake. Like it just feels like it shouldn't be shown this way or like designed this way. And, everything's so drastically dark and some shots are like darker than others and maybe that was like dependent on the lighting of the day and maybe this was like a new process for them i was trying to like figure out why those scenes look so different but i couldn't really figure it out online or in any any uh, kind of the notes that i was trying to figure out and look through 
it, that is also a really like drastic thing that takes you out of the scene and it's supposed to be such a romantic like scene where it really like shows you their passion and shows you why she's willing to like risk her marriage and it also dives deep into like what we we're talking about which is uh, the sexuality and the way she kind of reveals that she had a stillborn child and that her husband didn't even care that she was really sick and they lost the child and her husband the captain is also a, like a serial adulterer who has cheated on her many times and it's really just a broken marriage and and all of those felt like extremely bold right like for lines like nobody has ever kissed me like this to then you know minutes later in the same scene have an actress be like my fucking baby was born dead and my husband didn't care he just continues level women like it is so much like it brings like the bar so much higher in terms of like the drama and, and their relationship. But also it's a, such a weird aspect in the scene where they go from being like so passionate to like, I love you to then being like, fuck you. Like, I hate you. Like, obviously those are not direct quotes in the line, but there's like such a, like a turn and a switch that these two characters have where they like become kind of like pissed at each other. And I think it's because he like questions how many men she's with, she's been with. And that kind of like pisses her off. And she's like, it's been too many. Like I would need like a, she says like, I would need like a calculator or something to like <laughs> I figure think it's out like a counting machine. Yes. I would need a counting machine. Thank you to like figure out how many that is, which one like, Jesus Christ, how many people could that possibly mean? <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, well, maybe I took that more as a joke. Yeah. It's gotta like, be a joke. Yeah, I th- right. I think that was more of a joke kind of thing to say, but yeah, it, it really it, it it is jarring because the, it does feel like the hey I love you hey fuck you I hate you and, and I think that's ultimately why Warden doesn't want to be with her in the end and why he doesn't want to do it is yes he's passionate to the army but I think maybe he feels like she's too volatile that the whole idea is like not necessarily for him it was all passion and and whereas when you compare that to Pruitt and Lorraine it's that feels genuine like even though that those were like acts of you know of pleasure that they got that they started out with it became passion it became love whereas again with the other ones where it was with warren and karen is that was passion of love that just became only for pleasure yeah well i mean pruitt like needs her and she like drastically helps him when he goes awol and and he's she's there for him constantly but you know she's on the other side warden uh is she just never gets anything from her. She's just kind of very much using him just for, you know, that physical affection for someone to tell her how beautiful she is, like to give her this affection that her captain, the husband clearly is not giving her. So yeah, it's it's definitely shown that way. And and they're definitely complex relationships. I just wish like from both of the women characters that we just got more from them. And I think that just kind of sums up just how many characters there are in this movie and how they try to balance all of them. And, uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about just how much the characterization is kind of advanced and how we're pushing what we've seen already in Hollywood. And I think that is definitely apparent and I don't think it always works. And that's probably just in terms of risking it and, and trying to like take new steps forward and make a film that's, you know, pushing boundaries. But it's also about something that's very Americana. Like we just got out of the war about like eight years ago and people are probably still recovering at the time this was probably a huge deal to have a film that's just it's not outright saying like fuck the military but it's definitely showing like how bad the military can corrupt people's minds and how it can kind of mess with their lives and beyond just being you know at danger from war so it's it's interesting it it does a lot this movie and i think you have to kind of give it credit for how much it's doing and how much it's trying to balance and 
yeah, it, it took me another watch to kind of really see the bigger picture and to see how complicated the movie is in a way, even though we, there really isn't too much of a story here, right? It's just characters who start this movie at the very beginning. You kind of know their challenge and maybe you get some reveal or, or kind of trick here, but there's not a story. The characters don't need to do this and that to get to this and that. It's just these characters are trying to live their lives and they're just kind of experiencing their lives with these women and, and kind of getting mixed up and, and also experience their lives with friends like Angelo Maggio, who we definitely need to talk about our boy Sinatra. Yeah, so let's actually transition more into the the war and the soldier aspect of the movie uh, because I think that we kind of hit, hit a good point in that where it is, again, about the characterization. It is about the camaraderie that these soldiers do go through and the characterizations that we're talking about it has to again do with like that being a man and, and having that moral complex which leads into being a human and being a better person so that really is embodied in montgomery cliff's performance as pruitt he's the one that deals with all the the essentially torture and abuse that he's getting from his commanding officers because he won't join the boxing regiment which i think boxing itself is a very manly thing it's a very masculine sport it's fighting it, it's grueling it it's punishing to the body so I, I think like that's well used uh to use that as like the sport that that he is supposedly good at but he refuses to do because he's like my hands i have blinded someone god but, yeah, let's stop for a second and talk okay. about that because one i just think and maybe this is intentionally you tell me what you think but i just think montgomery clift is just an awful choice for someone who is a very talented and skilled boxer i just think I mean, you can be skinny or small for a boxer, but he just is, he's such a pretty boy. Like you look at him even today, he's like, well, one, everyone in this movie is so fucking hot. Like literally every man and woman in this movie is like so beautiful and attractive. It's, Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous, but he is just so clean cut that I'm like, I do not buy a single bit that you've ever been punched in the face. I just don't like, you're just way too freaking pretty and, and handsome. I just don't believe it. See, I don't think of him as clean cut. Like he is like a handsome guy, but I don't think of him as clean cut. I think of it more. He's not. Built that he's not built like the typical boxer, which maybe that lends itself to that Steve Rogers comparison That's true. and being the the smaller guy, and, uh, w- and so it's just funny that he was he like he was this like star boxer and he was supposedly that powerful with that, but also his other talent was being a bugler and and which doesn't require much physical sense, effort. Yeah. It's a very of I, I mean there's to play the bugle to kind of like talk about from that perspective, it requires more like, you know, talents with, with your mouth and and with, and thought process because you have to be able to essentially like lip and and mouth into the mouthpiece of the notes. Cause there's no like buttons like on it or or valves, I guess is the way to call it. I'm going to call it buttons on it. Like on a trumpet. I used to play trumpet. so I should know this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyways, like so, it requires more of like that head skill, which Clip Montgomery Glyft uh, characters does have, where he's headstrong, he's he's quick, he's he's witted, he knows exactly what he wants, and he knows that he doesn't want to be become part of this box regiment. He knows he doesn't want that to be what defines him, just because he can beat the crap out of someone. He wants to prove that I'm a good person. I want to be a part of the army. I want to prove I'm. He says I want, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm a 30 year man, and uh, it, it's it's fascinating. And and then. What becomes even more fascinating is the performance of Frank Sinatra in this movie because he he embodies that I'm a good-natured, fun-loving boy and I want to be part of the army. But at the same time, 
you're like, hey, that's Frank Sinatra the whole time. <laughs> and I just want, you know, I want you to sing. I want you to be more charismatic. And, and he gives that at bits. But then, but it's such a total shift, which I think is what makes it good for him because you're not expecting that. It, it comes completely out of nowhere. It was actually a point of his career where it was a low point. Like n- people had started to kind of forget about him. He wasn't doing well successfully. And this movie comes out and he's back right on the map to the Frank Sinatra stardom that we're used to. Yeah. So you mentioned in the, in our folder here, our outline, whether like who had the best performance and kind of posing that question. And I would probably say it's Frank Sinatra. And I saw that he credited like Cliff helping him out and Lancaster. And they were all kind of like very close when they were making this movie. But I would say that one, I just think he's kind of the most interesting character because he's just, it's that person who kind of makes jokes that are serious, but they're played off as jokes. Like, Later on, we'll we'll definitely talk about this scene where he comes in really drunk after leaving guard. Like he's super drunk and he's like cracking jokes about himself that are very deprecating, and people are like think it's hilarious. But he's being like dead serious. Like he truly like hates himself and hates the position that he's in. But he's like constantly using humor and like a huge grin on his face to kind of hide his sadness and his pain. And I think that's really impressive. And I think Sinatra really balances it really well, where he kind of uses that humor and that and that kind of like light fun performance to kind of balance really how sad and and depressed he is and he's also just a really great friend to Pruitt he's like always there he's backing him up he's getting into shit because he's trying to back him up and 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 say like some of the things that they're doing to Pruitt is is clearly wrong and he's there to like support his his good friend in the film yeah he's definitely not afraid to step up and, and speak and say something and yeah, the the scene where he's drunk in the bar, I think that and then his death scene are his two best scenes of the entire film. Uh, it's a it's a strong performance. I wouldn't say it's like, oh my god, like this is this is so fantastic. Like I I think that the reason why he and spoiler he won the Oscar that season is because hey, it's Frank Sinatra, he's the big name star, and like it it works. It you know everyone loved this movie, um, and and. And from what I've read, it uh, it seemed like that death scene was emotional for people to watch. But then when you watch, when I watch it now, it's like, eh, you know, it's goofy. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's goofy. It's good. Like he he's a goofy character, and he and I think that again, like what it lends itself to now is like, hey, that's Frank Sinatra. Hey, like look at him. He's doing like funny bits here and there. He's that com- comedic relief, even if maybe that wasn't necessarily what they intended to have him be. I think when <laughs> we talk about death scenes, and especially death scenes with someone dying in your arms i think tropic thunder really kind of like killed that forever from <laughs> happening with one of the opening scenes being like this long drag dawn performance and it's about actors who are trying to like up each other and have a more dramatic like death scene or reaction to the death you know and i just think that it kind of put the end to it like you cannot do it anymore no one's dying in someone's arms like we're done like I know it's so dramatic, but like, no, that is it. That put the nail in the coffin when you like really, you know, made something that's so much of a satire of something that's been such like a Hollywood trend. Like we need to, we need to move on. And I think this is clear what it is. This is like uh, definitely an iconic death scene, I think for the time and for classic Hollywood cinema. And it's a, it's a good death scene. You know, it's not overly dramatic or where he's like dying and just like, you know, (laughs) really drastically like falling out of his hands. But I think I read that there was supposed to be another line after the fact that he dies and they cut it. And I think it was supposed to be like Pruitt saying one last line to be like, be careful with his body. Like, don't hit his head or something like that. 
And that clearly would have been just like kind of like pushing it too far. It's 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 a good way to end his death scene with everyone just like being there and being like he's dead. Like fuck, like what the hell? What just happened? This is like clearly the military that's killed this man. And that's why I really loved his character the most is that he's he comes in and out, but it's like very clear that he's just struggling throughout this movie and it's just getting worse and worse and he's kind of getting like pushed further and further. And he's also just the guy who's he's acting like he has no worries in life. He's like very happy and he's cool. And, and you know, everything just kind of breezes off his shoulder, which is like very, not the case. It's, it's very much internal for him. And I think Montgomery's cliffs performance, you know, his performance is very internal because he's at first he's lying about why he's even here, you know, and yeah. you mentioned that he was a bugler and, and maybe that's why they like hired him because he's like kind of his boyish charm to him. Like he almost looks, he definitely looks younger than he is. And, he has this kind of like young younger feeling to him and he plays the like bugle and maybe that's why they kind of casted him because he's smaller and maybe he just happens to be a good fighter but he doesn't want to be a fighter you know he just kind of got put into that scenario and now he can't escape from it so I think that kind of works and plays and then you have the mystery of like what happened and him revealing that he blinded someone which I think it would have been way more dramatic if he just fucking killed the guy. Like, I think that crosses a line much more than just blinding him. I mean, especially if we're not going to show who this person is or show any scenes of, of it happening or, like, the, the scene where he goes to visit him in the hospital as he describes that he was blind. And Well, I think if he killed the guy, I don't think he would have been there in the military. Like, he still had to have been in the Army. Yes, but he was in the Army when he was boxing. And if you killed someone in a boxing match, like, you don't get criminally charged for it it's like you sign up to be in this yeah. boxing match like anything can happen you know well which yeah. is just yeah something that i think we probably need to talk about in general why the fuck is the military like having <laughs> boxing matches well you know? and i think that ties into more into like that this is a film not about wars because there was no like there's that sense of like fear within america they're like hey maybe we would go out to war but in this movie it presents everyone that like hey there's no war right now let's not give too much of a shit like you know, every, the camaraderie we're all building is through these like boxing regiments and, you know, within each different, um, you know, with each different like company within the army. And so for me, I think that that's why it it's there and why it's like so easily talked about because they weren't fighting. Like, and that was, and that, and that's the interesting aspect of this is that they're all the battle and fighting is with each other. And I mean, you get it at the end when Pearl Harbor does happen, but most of the juicy stuff is the inter fighting and, against each other uh throughout the film yeah like talking behind each other's backs i think there's a great moment where warden who is essentially trying to help pruitt's character you know pruitt's in a lot of shit he keeps like disobeying he's not joining the boxing group and it's really pissing off the captain because he really wants him because he knows how good of a fighter is and I'm not really sure if it's just, you know, to have the best fighters or if they're betting on this and making money and that's why they want it. Like, there's not really a clear... You win a trophy. Yeah, you win a trophy, yeah. like, I guess. I mean, is it just the captain wanting to have the best fighter? Maybe that's as simple as it is. But there's a moment where the warden is clearly... He, he likes Pruitt and he thinks he's a good guy and a good man. And the captain is just trying to, like, beat him as down as he possibly can to kind of convince him. And I think the captain is getting to the point where he's going to kick him out of the group or kick him out of the military. And basically the warden kind of convinces him otherwise. Just like, you know, throw the book at him. Like you can just like keep him here. And he's basically trying to help him, but also making it seem like the captain had this idea himself. Right. And it's really smart writing in the, in the way that a character is kind of like tricking someone. And the person who's being tricked isn't really realizing that they're being tricked. 
And it shows an interesting aspect to the military where it's like there will always be someone above you and there will always be someone below you because he he tells the captain this and the captain's like, you're right, I'm going to go do it. He leaves the room and then there's another sergeant in there who's just like, ha, 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 like I know exactly what you're doing, Warden. Like you're a smart guy. I see, I see exactly what you're doing. And then Warden is basically just like, shut the fuck up. Like go back and doing your work. Like he just <laughs> kind of like shoots him down yeah. and is being like, no, you have no idea what you're talking about, even though he's very much right. And I think that kind of also shows, and there's a couple moments like that throughout the movie where it shows just like the bureaucracy of the military and how there's always someone above you that can tell you what to do. And there's always someone below you that you can like fuck with or like shit on because, you know, you, you can just do that in the military. It's like a, this weird hazing that they have. That just never really ends, I guess, until you're at war. Yeah. And I I wish we, like, knew someone that was in the military to reach out or, like, get them to watch this film and be like, is this at all, like, what training is like or, like, what military bases are like nowadays? Because I would really love to know. Yeah, it definitely does not seem as united (laughs) as as you thought. It feels like everyone's against each other. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like Hollywood probably feels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's probably definitely true that it's just a cutthroat uh, business, but... Yeah, I think that the warden's, you know, characterization, the way he protects, you know, protects Pruitt, he protects Maggio at, at a certain point. I think that's kind of his role. And, and I, for me, like with Burt Lancaster's, you know, performance is that it's good, but it's nothing that feels like so great and grounded and, and like substantial until the end when he is leading everyone at Pearl Harbor. But even then you see him like in a queue, in a queue, like a few key moments, but it's never like the entire sequence that he's in there. He's actually saying and doing stuff, you know? Yeah. He's definitely not in it too much. And his character is kind of, you you know, the least about him really, to be honest, he's, he's just a good man basically is what they kind of summarize him as. He's a good man, a good soldier who cares about his men. He's like what you wish the captain was. You, it's like what you would hope that every person who's leading men in the military would be. And there's just not that much to work with. You know, he's just in that relationship with Karen and and that's kind of like their back and forth and for his back and forth for most of the movie and you get the drama of like you know whether the captain will know and and how close he is to the captain and some of that is just not subtle at all and other other moments of that is a little you know more subtle and more well done than other aspects but I just thought his performance was good. It was serviceable. You know, there's nothing really bad about it. I think it just comes down to the characters, just not as interesting as these other two characters that are kind of leading our spotlight here. Yeah, 100%. So let's sort of tie this all up towards the end of the movie. So Maggio dies because he's he gets taken to the stockade because he went off guard duty. He fatso, uh, just, you know, beats the crap out of him. He uses like a billy club. And so he's able to escape, but as he escapes, he falls out of the bed of a truck that he escaped on and he hits the ground and he probably hits his head and, and they don't show it. There's no really like bloodiness. You know, it's, he's not covered in blood or anything, but you can tell he probably was pretty, you know, head smashed, you know, broken ribs and stuff. So that's ultimately what killed him. So he dies. He dies by his own men. Let's, so let's put that out there that he dies not from battling, but from his own men. And then, uh, then Pruitt avenges him by killing Fatso in a knife fight. Which, what did you think about that knife fight? It was, it was like good and bad. Which it was I good think and bad. Summarizes this movie pretty well. All right, I'll say my bad thing first. The bad thing I thought with it, and it's also again the another goofy thing is that they use like the laugh steel Hawaiian music in the background. Oh, while it's happening because like, it's outside of a bar. Yeah, yeah and. 
and, and to kind of like pull back a little bit is the beginning of this movie there's no score in it there's no real music for the first like 20 minutes and i kind of enjoyed that and then i like to use blues music i like they included the hawaiian you know lap steels guitar music in it as well it definitely adds to the aura and of being in hawaii it makes it more believable but for that scene you should have just cut the score you should have had no because they did such a good job doing that earlier in the movie it's like why would you leave like the goofy lap steel guitar sounds yeah going on in the background? i don't know I, I, like you said we feels like Zinnemann's trying to make everything very naturalistic so if it's like they're outside of a bar in an alleyway like you're gonna hear music we're gonna make it realistic and you don't hear music up until that point because all you do hear is like the bugle or the the noises from the actual army base. So I guess like trying to figure out a reason why and that may be it. But for me, the biggest issue with this knife fight is it's pretty dramatic. It's intense. Like you don't really know what Pruitt's going to do. And then he basically crosses the line and, and says basically like I'm going to fucking kill you for for crossing this line and killing my good friend. And then, of course, he has the knife that, you know, Maggio had. It was his knife. And he's like, I'm going to get in revenge with his knife. And Well, no, it was Fatso's knife. It was that, Fatso's knife that he used to, like, stab him or well, like, he was gonna attack use, him. He right? was going to use it in the bar to attack Maggio. But that's originally when, right. Yeah, like, like Warden steps scene. up and, and, you know, smashes yes. the bottle. So that's like another scene where Warden protects Maggio from Fatso. And is there to help yeah. out. Yeah. And the biggest issue for the knife fight for me, though, is that the actual death of Fatso in the stabbing is just like hidden behind garbage cans like and it's so intentionally blocked that they just force them to go behind these trash cans and die and it it really pulled me out of the scene which up until that point felt very real and like dramatic and like an actual intense knife fight to a point where it just felt like you just didn't have the money or budget in order to show the stabbing but but in this case it's probably just a graphic thing right like we're not going to actually show this person getting stabbed is it like i don't know i feel like they probably could have there they've we've seen other graphic stuff and i mean i guess like but we can so we can show like burt lancaster making out with deborah kerr on the beach and like their bathing suits and stuff we can't show we can't pretend to have a knife go into someone and not like you have to like show the knife really going in but that can afar yeah you could show it yeah i I don't know but that's why i felt like intentionally done that way because i don't know why why else you would do it to like not show our lead character murdering someone that like may or may not have deserved it like clearly was a bad dude but like did he deserve to be fucking stabbed to death i don't i don't know i don't that's not really for me to decide i don't really know yeah so it's this very you know so Pruitt does this act he kills and he gets stabbed too in the fight and he runs away so he kind of goes bye-bye for a little bit in the movie towards the end well we also have to talk about the best crying scene i think we've oh ever the seen. oh the tap scene yes thank you because i definitely want to talk about that <laughs> um so back it up before the knife fight <laughs> before the knife fight uh so yeah montgomery cliff plays the bugle he plays taps for everyone and, and that is actually a very beautiful scene He's crying while playing taps. There are other people who are feeling the emotions. It Zinnemann gets a, a lot of great coverage shots of different uh, different units of in the army base. They're I all sitting in bed. Yeah, yeah, they're all sitting in beds. They're all sitting standing on the stairwells, leaning outside to like listen to the bugle horn. There's not really you know dialogue. That it just you feel the raw emotion. You feel like the passion. It's great music. It and the sound is is beautiful. So. It, it definitely captures you and hits you in the heart because you're like, oh, poor Sinatra, you're dead. And <laughs> I'm mourning for you. And 
Uh, you definitely, you know, if you feel like you have a fallen brother in this, so you definitely get like that emotion. So like that, that's definitely well executed from the film. Such a beautiful shot of just like a tear falling down his face right as like the sun is glistening on it. It's like such a perfect classic crying shot where you just see this person's emotions just playing through the bugle, which you never expect (laughs) to ever say out loud. And this scene reminded me of one of my favorite films the Shawshank Redemption. And I wonder if it's tied at all. If like Frank Darabont, like kind of was inspired by the scene, but the, the moment where Andy plays music in the prison and he kind of like inspires all the prisoners and he kind of gets their attention by playing this beautiful song. And it reminded me a lot of that scene because you have these different aspects. And I think it's why the world building is so good is moments like this, where Zinneman is like, no, we should see everyone reacting to the bugle being playing. And it's not just like some of the other side characters that we've seen here and there. It's like, we have no idea who these men are, but we're like seeing their reactions. We're seeing how this is affecting them. And these people probably have no idea who Maggio was or who Frank Sinatra's character was and that he even died. But they're all like, want to know what's going on and why this version of Taps is so good and and what happened. And they're all reacting. And I, I really love that. I think it kind of brings the world in a clear view and you kind of get a lot more than just, you know, Pruitt standing there and crying. It's, it's a lot more than just that. Yeah. It, it adds a lot of that emotional depth that I think that we were searching for, for most of the movie. And it definitely pays off and it, it is a beautiful and well cut and well directed scene. And so then again, so then he avenges Maggio kills Fatso. He goes on the run and then everyone's kind of just like, whoa, what's going on? Like where, like we're kind of just like waiting for like this next shoe to drop. And like, you can kind of sense and kind of put it together as the audience. Like, Oh, this is the 1941. This is in Hawaii. I wonder what's going to happen. And then you see the calendar. And then, then, yeah, right. And then they make a huge emphasis to show Burt Lancaster standing next to a calendar. It says December 6th. So you go, Oh, you know, facepalm the next day. It's going to be Pearl Harbor. So the next day it's Pearl Harbor and everyone gets attacked. (laughs) And it's actually, that's another great sequence. It's a great buildup. It it, it is a great buildup and they have really, really great practical special effects where you have the Japanese pilots shooting at the army base and it, it hits like, uh, there's basically army bases has a big courtyard for field in the middle of it. And there's just some guy who just gets fucking murked. Oh, I love that scene. Yeah. Cause he's running and he's like, the Japanese are, are bombing. And, pop, 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 yeah. pop, pop, pop. and he just gets like gunned down yeah. while he's running and yelling and trying to warn everybody. It's like such a dramatic shot as like the planes and flying his, right like, towards us. Bodies like flailing yeah, all over the place. Yeah, it flying. It's great. It, this is where the movie like gets so overly dramatic. And I think it works though. I mean, it's such a traumatic event that our country experienced. Right. And I think that that then begs the question then. And I feel like it it sort of goes back to the whole, like, this is a war movie, but not a war movie is our fascination with war movies and our fascination with, with death and, with, with murder, death and yeah. battle. And that goes right back to our third episode of All Quiet on the Western Front, where it's like we have this sick, you know, you know, desire to see this on screen, to see because it's fantastical for most of the audience. We are never going to see war. You know, we're never going to be involved and witness it. But like on the film and on the screen we can witness it and see it so when we do get it at the end of this movie it's like hell yeah like that's great (laughs) but that is also what makes this film interesting because we're depraved of that we're depraved of 
of actually seeing the fighting. So we see them all step up. They all look like they have no idea how to fight at all. Like, it's actually kind of remarkable they shot down one of the planes. <laughs> that Did wasn't... they, though? It's hard to tell sometimes what is even happening. I, so they, def- they definitely get one of them. There's, you know, some really great sh- sequences where there's bombs falling and the they all, like, you know, duck for cover and the windows, like, explode while they're all ducking. And, and so that's... So definitely Zinnemann builds up that tension. Burt Lancaster becomes a badass and a leader and is like, everyone... You know, bo- you know, follow me and like we're gonna do this and do that. He tells the cook, make a pot of coffee. No, make a barrel of coffee. <laughs> so definitely love that line. And then what's an intercut? And the, and this is another editing thing that I I didn't like. It pulls me right out of it. But some people really like it. Is the actual use of Pearl Harbor footage. And while it that's interesting that that to use the documentary footage like that to use like newsreel footage. It's so jarring and it break it brings you right out of the movie that I wish that it wasn't even included and maybe not even shown that the you know the harbor being bombed like that maybe you just let it be just the base and you only hear that Pearl Harbor is being attacked everyone you know hide and duck for cover yeah for a movie that kind of centers us around these three characters really and it never really shows us beyond that it doesn't like pull out to show a bigger world it's if we're in a certain scene or a certain setting it's because these characters are there we don't like cut away for any other reason there's like barely any even wide shots in this movie really it's all like kind of medium or close-ups to kind of just show what the characters are doing so then like you said to have like news footage which you already are pulled out of it because it looks drastically different the camera quality is not nearly as high because i'm sure these are not like professional, uh, you know, videographers that are there filming this while everyone is dying in front of them, right? This is probably like a running gun as fast as you can to record what's happening for history's sake, or maybe it's news. Who knows? You know, who knows? We can go on and on. But yeah, it does. It did pull me out of it for sure. I mean, cutting to these real scenes where it's like, we don't need this. Like, we're seeing these men's experience. We've been on the base or we've been in a bar, or we've been in the brothel, which is basically a bar. You know, we've been in these small groups, these small locations. We don't need to pull back and show a bigger picture. But I'm assuming Zinnemann and the producer probably felt like a bigger, just like an, an opportunity to show this event in history and to like really show it off and have a more like bombastic, literally bombastic kind of ending to this film. And that's probably why they were like, we need bigger, we need more, we need bigger explosions and showing ships sink, you know? Yeah, I so I definitely I think it pulls in the heartstring and gets like that box office blockbuster appeal for people watching it again. Like when I said, like Steve Rogers, Rogers beloved, he would probably see that because at the beginning of the war, he'd be like, "Oh my god, I ha- now this is why I'd want to join the army." Like this was this the movie he was watching in the movie theaters in the beginning of the Captain America: <laughs> The First Avenger? I don't know, but I like to believe that it is. Yeah, and, I would have to go back and uh, now I'm curious what movie it would be or if they like made it up. Yeah, I mean, it definitely had to have been 1940 or 41 that he becomes Captain America. We digress. I think we would love <laughs> to talk about Captain America because this movie kind of lends itself to that. But moving on. So Pearl Harbor is being attacked. Montgomery Clift has been hiding at Lorraine's house. He's stabbed. He's kind of getting over it. He's getting pissed drunk. He's actually getting pissed drunk the entire film. Uh, it's Montgomery Clift sadly he seemed to have been an alcoholic and seemed to have been battling it i think i read like on the imdb facts for this movie is like 50 pages long so it was like really hard to get through every single one but i think one of them did say that montgomery cliff was drunk in a few scenes so 
putting that aside. Yeah, but it didn't even like specify. It was just like he was drunk during this film. Man. Yeah, it was like says who? Like I, yeah, I, that's I, why sometimes IMDb facts are just you can't trust them, right? You can and you can't, and maybe if it's on there, you're supposed. To, I don't know. Yeah. That's a whole other <laughs> whole other thing. Uh, as people who are researching this have come across, it's like, hmm, is that true? Is it not? Uh, but anyways, but we do what we do know is true is that he's getting <laughs> drunk in this scene. He's acting very petulant towards Lorraine, who's protecting him this entire time and allowing him to be in there. She doesn't have he doesn't have to be in the home. She doesn't have to like be there to protect him. So he basically he's hearing all the attacks and he's like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to my regiment. And when we talk about you, you know, you answer the question I posed in the outline, which was who has the best performance. I kind of go back and forth. But for me, the argument for Donna Reed of having the best performance is this last scene with her when she's begging Pruitt to not leave, she's saying like, you know, don't leave me in the dark. Don't, don't leave me. Please don't go. I don't want, you know, what has the army ever done for you? I'm, I'm giving you this home. I'm giving you all this love. And then Pruitt leaves and she, but her like visceral reaction, it, it's so deep and emotional. So that's why I really love that performance from her. I think that was like her Oscar moment that, and like, I want to be proper scene is again, spoiler, like why she would go on to win for this role. So Pruitt leaves, and then Pruitt's trying to sneak back to the base. And now this becomes, again, another goofy, clunky sequence where I wish this didn't happen. So basically, Pruitt is trying to get back. The military, the U.S. military police see him running in the dark. Again, the dark is not really the dark. It's like <laughs> the light just, you know, exposure brought down. And he's shot and killed by his own men. So now this is another character who's not really fighting, but killed yet by their own men. Uh, so I don't know what that's trying to say, but it's the only two characters die by their own guys in this movie, or at least main people. Cause obviously the people of Pearl Harbor <laughs> that died anyways. Uh, so Pruitt dies. It, he, even that's like clunky. Cause he like a shot. He does like a front flip over a sand dune and then he's dead. And though you can see him sort of breathing and then, <laughs> so then he dies. Burt Lancaster's character comes and identifies him as like, he was always a hard head. And then it, it transitions just to the end of the film where it's uh, Lorraine and Karen on a boat leaving the island. And they're both sort of not telling the full truths of their story of why they're leaving. We have to also are Lorraine is saying her fiance Pruitt died because he was in a bomber and he got a silver star. So I don't know if she's ashamed of him. She's ashamed of herself. She doesn't want to tell the full truth. Because he, because maybe that's what she was told is that he wasn't a bomber and he was brought down. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the U.S. military didn't want it to get out that they killed one of their own guys by accident. Sure, that very much could be it. Yeah, yeah. So that definitely be it. And then Karen's character, um, and I, and again, this is another emotional moment that I, I liked, and it has to do with like leaving something behind. So Karen goes. So all Lorraine goes. I. Th it's very beautiful, isn't it? Talking about the island, and Karen goes. I think it's the most beautiful place I ever saw in my life. I can almost see where I work from there. From here, there's a legend. If they, meaning the lays, they float in towards the shore, you'll come back someday. If they float out to sea, you won't. So she tosses the lays in there, and it looks like they're not going back to the island. So it seems it's so like, hard to tell what, what they're doing. There's lays in the water. Yeah. It's yeah. So it's, it's an ambiguous sort of like inception kind of ending. Like, do they go back? Do they not go back? And it captures a very beautiful sentiment of idea of being at somewhere where you created memories and then leaving that place and never knowing if you'll get to return to that, to relive those experiences that 
seem life-changing. Both of their lives have been completely changed because of Pearl Harbor, but also because of the experiences they had with the men before it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said, and I totally agree. I thought it was an interesting way to end the film with our two kind of leading women characters. I have to go back and talk about the death of Pruitt because yeah. it is so freaking frustrating, and, and it becomes like so goofy that it's like hard not to laugh at your main character's death who is like that's like the most hurtful thing you could do to a viewer you're like invested in this character and you know if a character dies i want to at least be like invested in their story and when they die it should be tragic but this death is like shown as so goofy like you said it's like hard to even tell that this is supposed to be nighttime I mean, this man is a trained soldier. He should know that, like, if you're running around people that are already very anxious that they're spies, they don't know what the fuck is going on because there's, like, people attacking them from the skies. Like, I'm clearly, it's clear that every soldier would be very anxious and nervous as to what's happening. And then for people to say, like, stop, and you know that they're going to have guns with them, to not, like, stop and raise your hand or be like, hey, I was AWOL, or hey, I'm Pruitt, like, Pruitt, like, I'm, I belong to this company, like, just say nothing makes, like, literally no sense. As our, It makes our character look dumb. Yeah, he was always a hardhead. He was always a hardhead, but, like, it makes your character look idiotic. He died for no reason. It, it is a goofy way to show his death, because, like you said, he just, like, dives into, like, a sand pit. It looks like, you know, Boba Fett falling into, like, the fucking... <laughs> the mouth of the Sarlacc pit. It's, it's just goofy and it, it should not be goofy. It should be a tragic death that our character gets killed by accident. Like it should be like really pulling at your heartstrings. And maybe this, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was at the time, but this is just how it's aged. And maybe people really bought that this was nighttime and people just really didn't see right through it. But for me, it just like, it really kills the momentum of this movie. But then it ends on that really well done scene where you have these two women you don't even know if the women know each other, but they're like directly having conversations that elude that they might, but they're both lying, like you said. So it's a really interesting way to end the movie. It's just that his death leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. And I wonder if they added that scene afterwards to, you know, have a more conclusive ending or maybe even a more ambiguous ending because it is kind of ambiguous as to what happens with the sergeant and, and, Will they like, or will she ever come back as well? Or, or does she stay with the captain? Like there's a lot of unanswered questions, which I think is also kind of like a way of, of progressing in filmmaking. Cause from this point on, I mean like how many of our best picture winners leave us with questions, you know what I mean? Leave us asking like, Hmm, I wonder what happened to that character. Like we, we never really knew like if war didn't even survive, like he could have died during Pearl Harbor for all we know. Well, he, he does identify the body, so you know, but then the battle still continues, so you yeah. don't know like, how his career is going to pan out. Does and he I, go to war? Probably, right? Right, and I think the best place to end it, and you hit it, uh, is the ne- necessity of their deaths. They Both Maggio and Pruitt's deaths were unnecessary. They were done by, again, by the hands of their own men. They didn't die in war, even though they were committed to the army. They were then... You know, what, what were they paid with? They were paid with death because one decided to leave guard duty, which, you know, it, I guess in the context of the army isn't good, but it wasn't anything truly harmful. And then with Pruitt, yes, he does go AWOL, but at the same time, he wants to come back. He wants to help fight. He wants to help America, but he's repaid with death. And I guess that's another, I guess that's a comment on war. It's a comment on the army. So this is a very anti war, anti army film without directly saying it, but it's also a clunky way of reaching that conclusion, reaching that point, because you have to 
go through leaps and bounds. You have to be goofy with how it's presented. So I think that we've kind of like summed up and hit on most of from here to eternity. Is there any like last big point of emphasis you want to hit on? No, I just want to know if those lays are still out there floating around. <laughs> yeah, if they ever came back. So <laughs> let's jump into the 26th Academy Awards. From the motion picture capital of the world, Oldsmobile presents with pride the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences 26th Annual Academy Awards. Fellow members of the Academy, guests, friends, everywhere, Last year on this stage and over these channels, we celebrated a birthday with that backward glance everyone gives when the big dial has ticked off a quarter of a century. We were 25. The industry was 50. We felt fine, but there were certain glum folk who were afraid that the motion picture industry and all its arts and sciences hadn't much longer to live. The audience, they said, had drifted away. Tonight, we celebrate a single year, 1953. We celebrate it exultantly as a year of rebirth, revitalization, new techniques, new dimensions. As to the audience, it hasn't drifted back. It has surged back. And to help us bring you the Oldsmobile story tonight, here is Betty White, bright, new, happy television star on NBC and Life with Elizabeth. So come along and take the wheel of the new the 26th academy awards were held on march 25th 1954 at the rko pantages theater in hollywood and we also have, again, splitting in two locations, we also have a New York location featured at the NBC International Theater. And this year's show was actually hosted by Donald O'Connor in Los Angeles and Frederick March in New York City. And this is also another year where we've kind of come back full circle where all major winners this year were in black and white. Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of interesting because last year we did have like that split up Oscar parties throughout the world because yeah. of COVID. And I think though now in reading how they, they did it with this at the 26th ceremony, like they had the present, the presentation of best actor and best actress from off site, from people who are on set or at a stage doing something else and almost, and doing a live broadcast of that. But I don't even know if they would even do that today still. I mean, hell they're cutting out categories, but do you think they would even have like, Hey, in New York, we're going to have, this Oscar party and then we're going to have it on LA and kind of have the coast to coast like productions of it. I don't think they would even do that no, because they'd be so afraid of being too clunky. I mean, they don't even know how to do a production in the first place. <laughs> They're fucking that up. No, looking into it last, uh, the 25th Academy Awards and seeing when they first split it, it seemed it was mainly just for convenience for people that were on Broadway, which I think was a lot more commonplace than what you would see today. There's a lot more. And, and I feel like back then too, Broadway was still like, if you want to go see a show, you got to go to Broadway. Maybe you can go to see like a theater here and there in like a major city, but like if you really want to see the show, you have to go to Broadway. And I think it's not as much the same these days. So 
I think it was more of a convenience sake. You know, these people don't have to like leave their show or miss a couple dates of their Broadway show. They can just, you know, finish their night at, you know, whatever it is, eight o'clock and go over to the Academy Awards and still be a part of it. And that's why it's split. But I, there's no way I could see them doing this like in current time. Yeah, no way. But moving on. Uh, so first, let's hit the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. And that went to George Stevens. Uh, George Stevens is an American film director, producer, screenwriter, and cinematographer. Among his most notable films at the time were Swing Time, The More the Merrier, and A Place in the Sun, which he won Best Director. And this year, he was nominated for Best Picture for Shane. Moving on to the Academy Honorary Awards. Going through the list, we have Pete Smith winning for his witty and pungent observations on the American scene in his series of Pete Smith Specialties. 20th Century Fox Film Corporation in recognition of their imagination in introducing the revolutionary process known as Cinemascope, a cool new format of watching movies at the time. Joseph I. Breen for his conscientious, open-minded, and dignified management of the motion picture production code. And finally, Bell and Howell Company for their pioneering and basic achievements in the advancement of the motion picture industry. I... The Joseph Breen, like, being honored this way, it's like, I get it because it's the whole rating system and we're being like, no, that's not appropriate and that's appropriate. But at the same time, it's like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> that's, oh, man. That feels like like a a weird gift to him. He's just like, all right, for this movie, you're getting away with this and this. Or maybe, like, this overall, like, the Academy is getting away with some things here and there. And he's just like, yeah, like, but I'll need an Oscar this year. If you want me to get away, if you want to get away with doing this oh, in this film, know. then like maybe you can uh, pass me an Oscar later this year. <laughs> maybe that happened, but to me, I, I don't know. Maybe it would be self-regulated if there was no censorship, you know, going on. If we did allow for movies just to be what they would be, I don't know if they would be so explicit but maybe they would be i think from here to eternity would be a lot more explicit it would be but it would still it would still be pretty safe i don't think it would show it wouldn't be like as sexual as like shows and movies today i it'd be interesting to see this movie remade just in in how they would try to like advance it or make it more modern they would first off berlin gross probably oh yeah they would have been naked on the beach (laughs) oh yeah they would have been fucking as (laughs) as the waves wash over them yeah that that would definitely would have happened uh let's see (laughs) what there definitely would have been prostitution in the gentleman's club that definitely would have been shown and yeah not just her taking an earring off or putting an earring back on definitely gratuitous shower scene with all the army (laughs) men and and oh hell yeah that's what we're here for penises and asses hell yeah (laughs) that's what we're here for but yeah i mean I, I would like to see this movie remade in, in modern times. I, I kind of do wonder what it would be like, but also I'm okay if it not being remade and sure. just being is what it is. This is one of those interesting topics where it's, yes, it's about Pearl Harbor. It's very much about this particular time, but you could, in theory, make this movie at any point. You know, this could be about our war in Iraq and, and it just happens to be about three men that are also dating women that, you know, two of them die because of the military. I think there's a lot of, like, flexibility in here, but I think this movie has kind of inspired a lot of films, a lot of anti-war films or films that really kind of make you question the, the moral ethics of war and the American military. Yeah, let's put this in the back of our heads when we do reach the Hurt Locker because now I'm thinking about it, this would be an interesting movie to compare it to and, and to discuss of how it is presented. Also, a really interesting previous Best Picture winner. I mean, the best years are alive. Yeah. Kind of having this as like a double feature is really interesting because it's like 
watching this first and then watching like the post-war life and then maybe if you could find a film that's about three men during world war ii you could have like a, a whole trilogy of films <laughs> that kind of express the pain of, of war really moving on to best special effects this went to the war of the worlds uh so this is an adaptation of the 1898 novel of the same name by hg wells and it's the first of five feature film adaptations of the novel uh, I love the 2004 version uh, with Steven Spielberg and Tom Cruise. I watched that a ton growing up. We got to watch this version. I heard the special effects are still pretty wild for oh, yeah. even today. We'll definitely have to add that to our list. Best film editing goes to William Lyon for From Here to Eternity. Lyon was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Film Editing six times and won twice and also Picnic from 1955. So this is like one of those, really? Because when you... Again, when you watch this movie, maybe it's from a modern lens, it's clunky in its editing. It really, I don't like that sequence where it cuts back and forth with the iconic beach sequence. And then in the Gentleman's Club, it's so jarring. There's other cuts that seem really weird. Maybe it was so praised because it balanced the characters, but That's also what my thought was, yeah, that and maybe the ending sequences. Yeah, where. I was going to say that too, like the combat and, and the tension of building up the combat, which we didn't really talk too much about how like the there's cup shaking and they hear explosions and they're like hinting like, Oh, that's probably the mine down there. Like they're, they're probably just, you know, blowing up stuff in the mine and then it slowly builds up more and more until the actual battle happens. Yeah. But in terms of the actual cuts itself, I, it, I don't love it. It, it. It's actually one that I, I, that I, I can actually point and look at the specifics <laughs> of it and be like, not that cut. Don't like that cut. And yeah, it takes you right out of the movie. Yeah. But maybe it's also one of those weird years where they're not like huge, Heavy hitters. I mean, we also have Roman Holiday, The War of the Worlds, but I haven't really heard much about The Moon is Blue or Crazy Legs before, so it could be one of those yeah. weaker years, too. Moving on to Best Costume Design Color, this went to Charles Lemaire and Emile Santiago for The Robe. The Robe is a 1953 biblical epic film that tells the story of a Roman military tribune who commands the unit responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. The film was also the first picture released in the widescreen process of CinemaScope. Yeah, so we have another hint towards the new format, CinemaScope, and a big biblical epic, which makes sense why it would win for best costume design. Best costume design black and white goes to Edith Head for Roman Holiday. This is another one for Head, as this is her fifth win out of eight nominations. And I found this to be really interesting. Usually we don't go too deep into some of these uh, these kind of lower categories that we go through, but I wanted to talk a little bit. Also because Edith Head has been shown so prominently throughout the Oscars history, and she's kind of the goat of costume design. If, if she is the goat of yeah, costume design. Yeah, really is. So after the film's release in 1953, Head sat for an interview in which she presented Hepburn's wardrobe test. And the original footage was showcasing Hepburn and the, the kind of creations and the design that she wore, especially in that iconic scooter scene where she's riding with Gregory Peck. And later on, she kind of spoke directly about her influence and what they were going for. So Head said, you see, she's supposed to be a princess disguised as an ordinary girl on the streets of Rome. So we made her a simple costume. She wouldn't look different, Head explained, noting how Hepburn rolls up her sleeves of the shirt. In the picture, she had to look casual, informal, and we felt, due to the heart of Rome in summer, a girl would really do this sort of thing. And that came from Rebecca Adams from the Huffington Post. And I thought that was a cool little insight. We don't talk too deep into into like a, a category like costume design, but it is so imperative. And 
I wanted to also just mention that wardrobe because that is like such an iconic image in costume and in film history and especially that film which just has a, a lot of iconic moments and shots so big shout out to Edith Head constantly killing it best cinematography color goes to Loyal Griggs for Shane this is Griggs first nomination but second win as he won an honorary award in 1938 for Spawn of the North Best Cinematography Black and White goes to Burnett Guffey for From Here to Eternity. This is Guffey's first win, but he would later win Best Cinematography in 1967 for Bonnie and Clyde. We talked a little bit about the cinematography, but Ben, do you have anything else to add about this black and white cinematography? So for me, I think this kind of goes back to All the King's Men with the kind of the back and forth that we had where I find this cinematography to fall flat, flatter than when I initially watched it. It seems very generic and it, it does a lot of, you know, there's not, you said it before, there's not really many wide shots. There's not really, besides the beach shot, which again, like it's not like that cinematography, that beautiful from a cinematography standpoint. It's very just like there and, and it's really quick and there's nothing else that really stands out to me. I think that it's jarring. And the fact that we can point out saying like you try to make night scenes, but they're not night scenes. So I think that that's really easy to point and be like, that wasn't great. So for me, the cinematography isn't my favorite of any ones we've seen. I don't know how you ultimately feel about it, but for me, this yeah. falls flat. Yeah. There are the weird issues with like the night and day stuff, which definitely comes down to cinematography and, and the director kind of choosing the look for the film. But yeah, this film doesn't really have like a true identity when it comes to the visual language of, of the film and, and the way they kind of shot everything. It is mainly just mediums, just kind of following characters. It's not like dull and static where a lot of the shots are just still like we are getting some panning back and forth. But it's it's pretty simple. There's nothing that's really going to like jump out and really kind of like make you be aghast about some of the shots that you've seen. I mean, there are some cool shots like we talked about at the end, the guy running away from the plane. There's some cool other moments in the fight at the end and... Also, the bugle scene. I mean, that's just such a beautifully lit and shot uh, scene altogether and just the way they kind of like bring everything together. And that probably comes down more to the editing. But, yeah, the, the cinematography is there. It, it does a, a good job of just, you know, showing our characters and following them throughout. But nothing to kind of drastically make this film stand out. Best Art Direction Color goes to The Robe. Art Direction to Lyle R. Wheeler and George Davis. Set Decoration by Walter M. Scott and Paul S. Fox. This is Wheeler's third of five Academy Awards, previously winning for Gone with the Wind and Anna and the King of Siam. This is Davis's first of two career Oscars out of 15 nominations. Scott's first of six career Oscars. He was nominated for All About Eve in 1950. And then this is Fox's first of three career Oscar wins. So a group that definitely uh, has a lot of uh, gold in their, in, their, uh, in their closets and on their mantles. Best I don't know why I said closets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be sad if they're keeping them in the closet. Best Art Direction Black and White goes to Julius Caesar. Art Direction by Cedric Gibbons and Edward Carfagno. Set Direction by Edwin B. Willis and Hugh Hunt. This is a film adaptation of the Shakespeare play of the same name, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. It starred Marlon Brando as Mark Anthony, and this film also featured Greer Garson and Deborah Kerr. So some names that we've seen, some really iconic actors and actresses and then of course the goat himself cedric gibbons this is his <laughs> 10th of 11 total academy awards which is the most ever so he was nominated three times this year so he won for this and then he was nominated twice in art direction color one for young Bess, and then the other one for the story of three loves so 
He really is the fucking goat, Cedric He's Givens. We've been seeing him since day one. Uh, fascinating that you know, and uh, it's kind of sad that we're almost towards the end of his Oscar run, winning ten already. So goes to show how many times we've talked about him so far. Moving on though to best sound recording, this goes to John P. Lividary for From Here to Eternity. This is Lividary's third and final Academy Award. He previously won for One Night of Love from 1934 and The Jolson Story from 1946. He also won the Academy Award for Technical Achievement three times and the Academy Scientific and Technical Award once. Uh, I think this is a hard one to judge for us, especially because it is such an older movie. But I had no issues with the sound or the sound recording. I think it's pretty efficient. You know, I think that the war sequence is probably what really helped it. I think the actually one of my favorite sound bits is using reenlistment blues when Warden is talking and looking over Pruitt's dead body um, in the movie. But otherwise, I think this is probably just a pretty standard win for for a film. Yeah, especially if it's a really hyped up film, everyone's talking about it. it definitely kind of may get swiped in those technical categories. For me, though, if I had to take a guess, I would assume this is maybe like the onset location, like getting lines of dialogue as they're on a beach has to be pretty difficult. I think they kind of shot, you know, across the board in a lot of real locations with a lot of people, a lot of bars and kind of getting that like centered dialogue and and having it clean and crisp. I didn't really notice any issues with any of the audio in the film. Best song goes to Secret Love from Calamity Jane, music by Sammy Fain, lyrics by Paul Francis Webster. Secret Love is performed by Doris Day in the film. Day recorded the song on August 5th, 1953 in a session at the Warner Brothers Recording Studio in Burbank, overseen by Warner Brothers musical director Ray Heindorf. And Heindorf suggested that Day do a practice run-through with the orchestra prior to recording any takes, but acquiesced to Day's request that her first performance with the orchestra be recorded. Day recalls, When I got there, I sang a song with the orchestra for the first time. That was the first and only take we did. When I finished, Ray called me into the sound booth, grinning from ear to ear, and said, That's it. You're never going to do it better. Which is such an adorable little kind of moment and capture into the behind the scenes of, of making a song, which we don't always go too deep into, but it's good to shout out, and we should definitely take a little listen at this song as well. At last, my heart's an open door. Secret love's no secret anymore. I love happy accidents where <laughs> it's like we get it in one take and, and that's it. I, I love it when, when that shit happens in music and, and in film. I always think about the direction that people always say Martin Scorsese says where he he does one take and then he just like goes to the actor actress and says like how did that feel and if they both say good he just will be like we'll do another one for fun or like (laughs) he'll like kind of take their mind off of it and sometimes like that first take is maybe the best one or you know making their mind feel like that was the best take already is like that reverse psychology to be like okay now I feel comfortable that I can do the best take possible but Sometimes it is just that one and done, right? A hundred percent. Moving on to best scoring of a musical picture. This one goes to Alfred Newman for Call Me Madam. This is Newman's sixth Academy Award win. This is the first of two occasions for Newman that he would win best score two years in a row. 
So he won previously last year for With a Song in My Heart from 1952. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Bronislaw Caper for Lily. Now we also have From Here to Eternity nominated. This is this is odd that it's even nominated. I think it's getting bundled in just being one of the big kind of movies of the year. But anything you want to hit on with the, the musical score of From Here to Eternity? I like it. I like that it does have the lap steel guitar. I like the inclusion of blues as a fan of classic rock, of, of blues music, playing guitar myself. I really do like that how it's being incorporated now, how that rock music is being used in film. So you can clearly see like, hey, this new pop sensation of blues music that's going on. We're going to include that in, in the movie. So I really like that, uh, that, that that style is now being integrated in the, in the films that we're watching. And at the same time, though, there isn't really memorable music and scoring of the film outside of that. Um, I think of just that one movement towards the end of the movie that they play um, where it's like, and like, that's nice. But otherwise, yeah, the score is like kind of okay. Best live action short subject to real goes to Bear Country to Walt Disney. This is part of the True Life Adventure series of nature documentaries, and the film played with Peter Pan during its original theatrical run. Best live action short subject one reel goes to Johnny Green for The Overture to the Merry Wise of Windsor. Best documentary short subject goes to The Alaskan Eskimo to Walt Disney. This is the initial film in Disney's People and Places series, and in October of 2019, I thought this was interesting, it was announced the series would be revived for Disney+. Plus. Supper Club is producing the series under its April 2019 first look deal with Disney+. Plus. However, as of January of this year, 2022, nothing further has been heard regarding its status. So we have not seen People's and Places series being put on Disney+. Plus. But if it eventually does end up there, you can probably see the Alaskan Eskimo. Best short subject cartoons goes to Walt Disney for Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. This is Walt Disney's first cartoon to be filmed and released in widescreen cinemascope. Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom is a stylized presentation of the evolution of the four orchestral sections over the ages with the brass, toot, the woodwind, whistle, the strings, plunk, and the percussion, boom. Best documentary feature goes to The Living Desert 2, Walt Disney. So Walt Disney this year won four awards of the evening, which set the record for the most Oscars won in the same year. Walt Disney also holds the record for winning for the most different films in one year for what no one else has won awards in the same year for more than two films. So the GOAT, Walt Disney, winning four awards this year, winning it for eight different films each time. Pretty remarkable, but yet still kind of like Disney controls everything. So I did like a little deep dive to see you know, who has won, you know, close to this. And there's been a lot. So 84 different individuals have accomplished the feat of winning two or more Oscars on the same night, 98 different times. 11 people have won three in a single ceremony. And most recently that was Bong Joon-ho at the 92nd Academy Awards to accomplish his feat for Parasite. But he did receive four statues that evening because he also won for best international feature film. But on technicality, that movie primarily goes to the country and not necessarily the filmmaker. So it went to Korea, but Bong Joon-ho did have his name on the statue, but he's not the primary recipient of Best International Feature Film, which is why he only gets credited for three, despite winning four statues of that evening. 
best story goes to Dalton Trumbo for Roman Holiday. This is Trumbo's first of two wins in the best story category, both of which he was not credited as himself under pseudonyms. In 1993, Trumbo was posthumously awarded the Academy Award for writing Roman Holiday, which was all the way back this year in 1953, and the screen credit and award were previously given to Ian McClellan Hunter, who had been a front for Trumbo. A new statue was made for his award because Hunter's son refused to hand over the one his father had received. He was finally given full credit by the Writers Guild for Roman Holiday in 2011, nearly 60 years after the fact. So I watched Roman Holiday today. And uh, I did notice Dalton Trumbo's name in the credits. So I don't know if that was like going back and they added that in. It's from Apple, right? You watched it? Yeah, I watched it on, on so iTunes. So probably. Yeah, yeah. He could, it could have been. So it was definitely interesting to note that I was there. Why it doesn't win for like the actual best screenplay. I don't know. But I actually think it's a, well, you'll see why it doesn't win in a few categories. But at the same time, I thought it was a really interesting idea. And then, but at the same time though, and I'm going to nitpick at best story again because I just love nitpicking at it. It's supposed to be about a category for like great ideas and, and not necessarily for the script itself. The Roman holiday idea does feel similar to it happened one night where it's about this rich heiress running away and then falling in love or going on an adventure with a reporter who does who wants to write up a story about it but then doesn't in the end. And it ends a little differently, but that idea is still sort of the same weird i didn't realize that wow. yeah so yeah look, look back read up on it and like maybe you feel differently but to me like it feels like hey this story has been done before it's a perfectly fine movie it wasn't one of my favorite roland holiday but uh i definitely like it it's classic audrey hepburn beautiful gregory peck beautiful deep voice so love absolutely love it moving on to best story and screenplay goes to titanic but not that Titanic you're thinking of. This Titanic was written by Charles Brackett, Walter Reich, and Richard L. Breen. The film centers on an estranged couple on the ill-fated maiden voyage of the RMS Titanic. This is Brackett's fourth and final competitive Oscar, and he re would receive an honorary award in 1957. I read the plot summary for this Titanic. It is totally different than what James Cameron did in the 90s, so it's still interesting that that there is another Titanic movie that is sort of similar, but not similar just because of the events that happened. So I would like to go back and watch it when we do hit that Titanic movie, just for comparison's sake. That would be a great comparison. And I just have to say that they both would have fit on that door, but <laughs> best screenplay goes to Daniel Teradash for from here to eternity based on the novel from here to eternity by James Jones. This is Teradash's only career Academy award. And a fun little tidbit about Teradash is he served as the president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences from 1970 to 1973. He was the impasse 20th president, and in 1972, he introduced Charlie Chaplin at Chaplin's legendary appearance at the 44th Academy Awards and presented him with an honorary award. Best Supporting Actress goes to Donna Reed for From Here to Eternity as Alma Burke slash Lorraine. This is Reed's only nomination and win. It was a long walk. I didn't think I was going to make it. Well, I'm, I'm very proud and I'm very grateful, especially to Columbia Pictures. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience from here to eternity. But I think even more wonderful is from eternity to here. Thank you. 
Reed would later star as a wise and loving wife and mother in the long-running television sitcom The Donna Reed Show. She was nominated four times for an Emmy, uh, and in 1963, she won a Golden Globe for that role in The Donna Reed Show. And she also is best remembered as Mary in It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Kind of alluded to it before, but I think that this is my favorite performance of the ensemble cast from From Here to Eternity. I, I think just she gives like some really visceral performance and really great emotion. Uh, she's a great actress. She's beautiful. She's dynamic. She really cuts deep. Uh, and she's really sharp. So I, I definitely love the performance and totally have no issue with her winning Best Supporting Actress for it. Yeah, she gave a really great performance. I just wish her character had a little more kind of meat to chew and a little more agency in in the film in general. Just kind of kind of push her and, and you know make her have some more decisions and not just kind of all be about her trying to win over a man or trying to help this man. It's everything just for the women in this film just seems to be centered around men and what they can do for them or vice versa their relationship. Yeah, and and to kind of just go off it for a second, I think that if I had to cut like. A plot line from the movie to save a plot line i would cut the uh warden karen love story for uh lorraine and, and uh, pruitt's love story i think that would help heighten it it would add more to it add more focus it wouldn't seem as clunky um so that and i think that just shows how good donna reed and montgomery cliff were and their performances and how well they work together Best Supporting Actor goes to Frank Sinatra for From Here to Eternity as Private Angelo Maggio. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm deeply thrilled and, and very moved, and I really, really don't know what to say because this is a whole new kind of thing, you know, I song and dance man type stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm terribly pleased, and if I start thanking everybody, I'll do a one-reeler up here, so I'd better not. And uh, I'd just like to say, however, that... that uh, they're doing a lot of songs here tonight, but nobody asked me. <laughs> and I love you, though. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you. This is Sinatra's only competitive win out of two nominations. He received an honorary Academy Award for The House I Live In in 1946, and Sinatra later received the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award at the 43rd Academy Awards in 1973. And the reason for Sinatra's casting, you know, there's been a lot of rumors and a lot of different things spoken about it, but the final confirmation came uh, actually from his wife, Ava Gardner, at the time, who was shooting a film for the Columbia's head, Harry Cohn, and suggested to him that he use Sinatra for From Here to Eternity. Although he was very reluctant, Cohn eventually saw this as being a good idea, as Sinatra's stock was so low at the time that he would be able to sign him for a very low salary. Sinatra had been lobbying hard for the role and even suggesting that he would do it for nothing. But he was eventually hired for the token amount of $8,000. Yeah, so there's that famous uh, rumor that seems to have been portrayed in another Best Picture winner, The Godfather, where that maybe the mob was involved in getting Sinatra this role. And it seems that theory seems to have been debunked, but it's certainly a fascinating one to want to believe that it was true. Yeah, I mean... I just like if you were going to use mob influence to get a role, why would it be like this role? You know, I don't know. Maybe there's something like easy to kind of see why that would be the case. But you would think it would be like something more schlocky and like something more. That, I don't know. I'm just thinking like if the mob was trying to like help someone be in a movie, it would be like a movie that the mob would want to see. And I don't think from well, here to eternity is a movie that like mobsters want to see. But maybe I'm so off I, base here. I, I kind of want to. It's funny you mentioned that because I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. So he 
Sinatra would play like some crooner characters. This wasn't the first movie he's been in, but he played like some kind of mob crooner characters. So maybe you wouldn't want him for that. But then I also am thinking about it. There's there was an episode of The Sopranos called From Where to Eternity, which kind of based off of this. So maybe the mob did like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. Because we know The Sopranos is a truthful representation of the mob. Oh, yeah, 100%. Oh, man. But uh, moving on um, to Best Actress. Best Actress went to Audrey Hepburn for Roman Holiday as Princess Anne. This is Hepburn's first career win and nomination. She would go on to be nominated four more times, but she would never win again. She also received the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award in 1992. Hepburn is one of 16 people to be an EGOT winner. She was the fifth person to accomplish this when she posthumously received her Grammy in 1994 for Best Spoken Word Album for Children, Audrey Hepburn's Enchanted Tales. On September 18, 1951, director Thorold Dickinson made a screen test with Hepburn and sent it to director William Wyler, who was in Rome preparing Roman Holiday. Wyler wrote to Dickinson stating that, as a result of the test, a number of the producers at Paramount have expressed interest in casting her, meaning Hepburn. Roman Holiday was not Hepburn's first acting role, as she had appeared in Dutch and British films from 1948 and on stage, but it was her first major film role and her first appearance in an American film, which would go on and elevate her to the stardom that she has reached and the icon, the iconic status that she has. You know, I was looking at it and looking at her filmography. She only made, you know, after this one, you know, Roman Holiday being like her one that really jumpstarts her career. She only made like 20 films in total. It's a really short and small career. And it's pretty remarkable because she's, more uh, like she's iconic but more for like her fashion it seems like like that seems to be the everlasting thing versus her films and i think that not many people from a modern standpoint are going back and watching her films maybe breakfast at tiffany is the one that people go back to without movie has issues but she she's beautiful she's a great actress she is she's a star of stars so it's certainly fascinating to think about how in in total she just had like a really short and small career Best Actor goes to William Holden for Stalag 17 as J.J. Sefton. This is Holden's only career win of three nominations, and he was previously nominated for Sunset Boulevard in 1950, and he would go on to be nominated for Network in 1976. Holden's speech for Best Actor for his role in Stalag 17 was a simple thank you, making it one of the shortest speeches ever. The TV broadcast had a strict cutoff time, which forced Holden's quick remarks. The frustrated Holden personally paid for advertisements in the Hollywood trade publications to thank everyone he wanted during the Oscar night. He also remarked that he felt that either Burt Lancaster or Montgomery Clift should have won the Best Actor Oscar for From Here to Eternity instead of him. So it's another moment where people have gone back and said, hey, Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster both being nominated for Best Actor uh, here split the vote and is kind of what put William Holden to win so Holden even admitting that himself that he shouldn't have won and at the same time it's one of those frustrating things because why did both of them have to be nominated for best actor I think clearly Montgomery Clift is the lead I would have put Burt Lancaster as a supporting actor but I'm pretty sure Burt Lancaster is built higher and it doesn't but it still doesn't feel like he has more screen time than Montgomery Clift does and especially within the story of the film it doesn't feel as consequential and but maybe that's also because we didn't love his storyline as much so it's certainly fascinating that, that they're both there. 
I think for this, if like you were going to pick one of the two, I would have picked Clift over Lancaster. Yeah, we also have Marlon Brando as Julius Caesar this year and Richard Burton for the robe as well. So another stack year for yeah. this actor. And Br- Brando not winning again. But uh, the next movie we are going to be... That might change. Huh? Oh, boy. We are going to be doing a Brando off. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get my Brando off. <laughs> off on Brando. <laughs> Moving on to Best Director. Goes to Fred Zinnemann for From Here to Eternity. This is Zinnemann's fourth nomination and second win. He previously won for Best Documentary Short Subject for Benji in 1951. He would go on to direct and win the 1966 Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. Zinnemann's style filmmaking spread across multiple genres, and it always had a sense of duty to the character psychology rather than story. He directed actors and actresses to 20 total Oscar nominations, winning six of them. And, interesting, and interestingly, uh, one of Zinnemann's first jobs in Hollywood was as an extra in All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930. So I think it's pretty fair. It's pretty, you know, pretty right to give Fred Zinnemann this award. Maybe he should have gotten it for High Noon, which was from the previous year. But this feels right, you know, to give it to him for From Here to Eternity. Certainly a strong direction. And, and again, like we, we tackled it heavily in the beginning, that these that this film was felt more modern. It was more about character development. It was more about character psyche. It allowed the actors to dive deep rather than just telling a story. It was the characters telling themselves to move the story along. It's that bigger kind of ensemble with a lot of characters. So you kind of have that trying to tell this bigger story, tell the true event as well. So it's got a lot riding on Zinnemann's shoulders. So I think he kind of really got off the story and he really represented and gave got great performances out of our lead actors. So I think that really shows. And finally, we have Best Motion Picture. And the nominees are Shane, Roman Holiday, The Robe, Julius Caesar, and our winner, From Here to Eternity, Buddy Adler for Columbia Pictures. And this achievement of eight awards for From Here to Eternity matched the record held by Gone with the Wind from 1939. And the record was tied again the following year by On the Waterfront. Spoilers. Columbia Pictures holds the most Best Picture winners with 12. So, Ben, is there anything else you want to hit on any of these other films? Are there anything else you want to add to From Here to Eternity? No, I, I don't think nothing too much. I think that the note about it, you know, winning or tying Gone with the Wind for the most uh, ever at the time is, is certainly interesting. So we, we've had a number of films winning eight or more. Uh, some ones to throw in there just to put into context of how many times this has happened. So Slumdog Millionaire has done it, Amadeus, Gandhi, My Fair Lady, On the Waterfront, Gone with the Wind, From Here to Eternity, uh, all won eight. Then you have films that won nine, which was The English Patient, The Last Emperor, and Gigi. Ten went to West Side Story, and then The Most Ever, which is 11, which is Ben-Hur, Titanic, and Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. So it's in pretty elite company. Uh, to win that many awards, it, you know, it, it's certainly an accomplishment. Not many films have done it. So it, it lends itself to be like in that conversation of like, is this one of the best films of all time? Like how, how does that compare to others? And I think that it's really hard for us to answer that at this moment or maybe ever, but it's certainly fascinating to be like, Hey, this won a lot, this tied with gone with the wind. So just putting that context and that thought in there might shift your, opinion or, or stance on it for when you watch it as the audience but we'll definitely have to see but let's give some stats and figures before we give our final thought and our ratings 
From here to eternity has a 92% around tomatoes with an average rating of an 8.3. The top critic percentage is an 88 with an average critic top critic rating of 8.4. Audience score is an 84% with an average rating of 3.99 out of 5. IMDb gives it a 7.6. Metacritic gives it an 85. And again, it won 8 awards out of 13 nominations. John, what would you give for From Here to Eternity? I gave From Here to Eternity a 78 out of 100. And that really comes down to some of the weird aspects of, of kind of the relationships they have in the film. And some of it that I just don't really feel like was necessary. Some that kind of took away from the film just due to some clunky performances and some clunky dialogue but there's another aspect of this that i wish we got a little bit more i mean this story takes place in hawaii but we didn't really get any like native hawaiians at all like there's like no real mention of of the entire kind of like culture that's there i wish there's they work in the bars that's all they show yeah they work in the bars and there's like some background characters here and there so it's like there could have been a character like one of the love interests could have been someone who is native. I mean, we could have just gotten more to kind of like expand on, on the world a little bit. And there were some clunky aspects here and there, but overall, I think it's a really interesting story. And it's a story that kind of allows these different characters to go into really dark places, but also have this uh, le- level of like camaraderie and, and, and it's kind of collective group of people that are trying to like make it through this struggle and then also, you know, kind of progressing film in general and then pushing lines when it comes to sexuality and, and what you can talk about and what you can even show in a film. So, yeah, I think a 78 kind of summed up my feelings. It's it's not the best, but it's definitely not close to being the worst. So it kind of fits in, in the middle here for me. Yeah, so I gave uh, it an 82 out of 100. For me, it's sort of in similar veins to what you were just talking about. I think that ultimately... This movie, originally when I watched it, I loved it, and I, and I gave it a, a much higher rating. But then watching it a second time, I don't know. It, it just felt clunky. It felt goofy. It didn't necessarily match up to like that greatness as, as I thought it originally was in my head. The story moves by really quickly, but it moves by really quickly because it can gloss over story. The characters, though, are good and interesting, and the acting is, I think, the best part of it. But that doesn't mean necessarily the, the script is strong. I think that... For the amount of times that we talk about lines and break it down, I think for us to not have as many lines to talk about really shows how weak the script was and the dialogue was, which is kind of kind of goes against the grain of what critics and people say about it now because people love the script, people love the story. Uh, just for me, watching it a second time, it doesn't, it, it didn't add up to me. So I, I brought it down because of that. The technical aspects, I think I have some issues with. But it still is all brought up, you know, it's still to have an 8 and 82. I think it's just because of the acting. I, I think that's all kind of powerful. There are some good technical achievements, sort of more with the Pearl Harbor sequence, but that's the last 10 minutes. I think the themes of it being about war and that I find I still find it fascinating that the two men that die don't die in war, but they die at the hands of their own men. I think it's a very interesting commentary and, and just a, a dichotomy that we I've never really seen in other movies, so I find it to be fascinating. So it's lower than probably what I usually give movies, especially for this. I Maybe I would have given a higher one if I was maybe in a different mood or a way of watching it, but I gave it an 82. So right now, John, your average score is a 71.19, so let's call that a 71.2, and I'm at a 76. So through 26 movies, it has been brought down by a few, notably, again, by The Greatest Show on Earth, last our last episode we gave it some pretty low ratings, but I think the next one is going to bring up, or the next few are really going to bring up our scores and ratings. I'm really excited to talk about it. But anyways, let's answer that age old question. 
is from here to eternity worthy of the best picture award of 1953 i would say yes i would say yes because we got some really fine performances i think the story overall it it asks a lot of questions and, and it leaves things open it feels like a kind of progression in our storytelling you know progressing into subject matter that we maybe at this point haven't been able to dive deep into while some of the technical elements don't always hit for me i think there's still a lot to love here when it comes to some of the performances and if you just like a story that you don't really know where it'll go a story that's not telling you the final objective from the very beginning then i think you'll you'll enjoy this and if you love a military film or a war film that's not about war at all then i think this is right up your alley how about you ben yeah, I I've, I think I've gone back and forth about it. Originally, I would have said like a very strong yes, I'm hesitant, but I still think it is worthy. I think that it's pretty iconic for the zeitgeist of film. Again, that that beach scene and beach shot is very iconic and and probably goes in the real of like the best shots of Hollywood. You know, especially of classic Hollywood. So it definitely b- belongs there. This you know having Frank Sinatra in the movie definitely lends itself to being like oh my god look at this star-studded movie Burt Lancaster Montgomery Clift are also fantastic as well as Donna Reed and Deborah Kerr so it's a great cast great ensemble the story works and and I think that it, again it's all the character development and, and and I think that's really going to push the the stories and the movies that we see moving forward I, I think this is like a start of something really good and a little more modern so especially from what we've seen comparatively so it's a hesitant worthy yes but yeah i think it's worthy and it it does belong there it seems like this was not one of the strongest years in oscar history but it definitely you know it's going to be up there now if you were to put it up against some other ones i think it wouldn't necessarily break through but i'll give it a a yes that it is worthy so john that is from here to eternity that is the 26th academy awards we're going on to some pretty again some pretty heavy hitters as i'm hinting at in our next one so is there any final thoughts you want to give before we sign off? Man, I just want to know where those lays are. I want to know <laughs> if they left the shore, if they went back to land. I just want to know where they at. And I think that's the beautiful mystery of life. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we'll be. But we do know that we thank you for listening. And hopefully wherever you go next, you will be listening to our beautiful sultry voices within that time. So anyways, I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.